You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Chris Schultz. On today's show, we'll hear about some of the health challenges facing West Virginians, including lung disease, HIV outbreaks, and recovery. We also learn how to meet the challenges of the holidays with aging family members. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. A lawsuit has been filed on behalf of the Charleston residents who've been without gas service for a week. Curtis Tate has more. A Charleston personal injury law firm sent a letter Thursday to Mountaineer Gas and West Virginia American Water. The letter asks the companies to preserve documents, recordings, and computer files that may be relevant to the case. The lawsuit was filed in Kanawha Circuit Court, seeking class action status for hundreds of Westside residents who lost gas service following a water main break last Friday. At the request of Governor Jim Justice, the West Virginia Public Service Commission has launched an investigation into the outage. Mayor Amy Goodwin said Friday that 380 gas customers had service restored, with another 90 awaiting inspection for reconnection. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The state legislature held interim meetings in Wheeling earlier this week. As Emily Rice reports, more than half of the Department of Health and Human Resources workforce will be eligible for retirement by 2029. Dr. Sherry Young, Interim Secretary of Health and Human Resources, informed the Legislative Oversight Commission on Health and Human Resources Accountability about the potential problem. She said while hiring initiatives have taken place and vacancies have been filled, more than 50 percent of the DHHR's workforce will be eligible for retirement by 2029. Imagine five years from now, 53% of those people retiring and going home. You're going to lose the institutional knowledge of the folks, our nurses that have been there for 40 years. You're going to lose that institutional knowledge of programs and how to make things work. Lawmakers asked Young to survey the workforce to find out who will retire when they're eligible and who will stay on past retirement age. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. A national LGBTQ rights organization scored seven West Virginia cities on its latest municipal equality index. Curtis Tate has more. For the third year in a row, Huntington and Morgantown scored a perfect 100 on the Human Rights Campaign's Municipal Equality Index. Charleston came close at 92. All three cities were recognized by the organization as all-stars with at least an 85. West Virginia is one of 20 states that lack statewide protections against discrimination for sexual orientation and gender identity. Out of more than 500 cities the organization scored, 129 received a perfect score. In West Virginia, Wheeling scored a 76. Charlestown got a 45 and Lewisburg a 43. Parkersburg scored 13. The index considers local anti-discrimination laws, the municipality as an employer, law enforcement, and local leadership on LGBTQ issues. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Tuesday marked 53 years since the Marshall University plane crash. Football players, coaches, staff, supporters, and the flight crew perished returning from an away game at East Carolina. Every year on November 14th, Marshall remembers them. Randy Yoey has the story. Thousands gathered around the splashing Marshall Memorial Fountain, unified in the theme of We Will Never Forget. 
Like all his predecessors, Marshall football head coach Charles Huff tells his players, when you come here, you choose this story and you choose this history. So it's important that you understand what you chose. You understand why it's so important to the people that are here. Um, you understand why it's so important to this community. Um, so then you can have your own personal feeling and personal lane towards the event. Keynote speaker Craig Greenlee says he would have been on that plane had he not resigned as a player the previous year. Greenlee believes the 1970 tragedy actually brought the community together during a time when racial tensions at Marshall were high. People were at each other's throats and the fact that the city police had to be called in. But see, then the crash happened the next night and it's like that all disappeared. WSAZ Sports Director Keith Morehouse lost his father Gene in the crash. His wife, Debbie Hagley Morehouse, lost both her parents that November night. They quietly attend every memorial because Marshall has been so respectful to them over the years. It's incumbent upon us to, to show up and, and show our appreciation and our respect. Everybody has their own way, but the fact that the university does this is uh, really has an impact on those of us who lost people that night. Every year on this day at the memorial's end, The fountain is turned off until spring football practice, another way the Marshall community shows they will never forget. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Huntington. The Steep Valley Fire has burned more than 2,200 acres of the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. Caroline McGregor reports. The National Park Service says the Steep Valley Fire is 78% contained. Hunters and visitors are advised to avoid the War Ridge and Bacchus Mountain area near Meadow Bridge in Fayette County, where pockets of the fire continue to burn. A helicopter was brought in Wednesday to perform aerial water drops using water from the New River. Meanwhile, as of 10 a.m. Thursday morning, 33 firefighters remained on the site of a 100-acre fire just off Forest Road 947 in the Monongahela National Forest in Pocahontas County. Monongahela National Forest Public Affairs Officer Kelly Bridges says drier weather is fanning the flames. West Virginia is having a very dry fall, and in the afternoon, when it heats up, we're getting down to really low humidity, and that's what can make some of these fires grow. The National Weather Service has predicted rain for Friday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin announced last week he won't be running for re-election to the Senate. As Curtis Tate reports, he's leaving the chamber on both low and high notes. Joe Manchin says he's never seen Washington more divided. And yet, he says the most recent Congress, the one that ended in January, was a productive one. Everything that we did in the 117th Congress, which I think, that's, 20, that's uh, 2020 to 2022, and then really finished up in January 2023. But I think it'll go down as one of the most, uh, in history, as one of the most productive Congresses we've, that we've ever had. There was COVID relief, an infrastructure bill, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and a bill to help veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. And it was all done in a Senate divided 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, with Manchin sometimes as the most critical vote of all. Though he was a decisive vote on some of that legislation and could single-handedly stop some of President Joe Biden's nominees, Manchin downplayed his own influence. When you have an even split, it's kind of hard for one side to blame the other is equal. They're equally, they can equally have all the same power. No one has more power than the other person. One person can shut things down. One person can make things happen. Manchin will leave a chamber that could well flip to Republican control after next year. Democrats will have one less vote if a Republican wins Manchin's seat, and that's considered highly likely. 
Manchin says throughout his time in the Senate, he tried to work across the aisle. He also says his staff closed more than 100,000 constituent cases. Those include basic services like getting veterans benefits or Social Security benefits. Manchin has been hinting that he might pursue a third-party bid for president. But speaking to a group of West Virginia reporters Wednesday, he didn't make any specific commitment to run. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. The holidays can be a stressful time, but dementia can make that even more difficult. For his series Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Teresa Morris, Program Director for the West Virginia Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, to get some ideas for families who are working to include someone with dementia into their celebrations. Let's talk about the holidays. Uh, holidays. We've got Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas, we've got Hanukkah, we've got all kinds of reason families are together. What should you do? What should a caregiver know and do to adjust things to help out? I mean, so we know that, I mean, holidays are challenging for everyone. Anyway, yeah. Anyways, and then if you throw someone in that, you know, has dementia, you know, I think the biggest thing is we, as caregivers, we have to remember that we have to adjust our expectation of what the time is going to be like. I mean, you can still have fun. You can still have a fantastic celebration, but it's probably not going to be the same. Um, you know, you want to try to check in with the person that has the disease. You know, how you doing? Are you okay? Um, you know, you want to focus on things that bring happiness, you know, and, and, and letting go of maybe activities that are overwhelming to the person with the disease. I know my family, at least, you know, our celebrations are loud. That might be something you have to take a look at and, and maybe change that a little bit. You know? I, I remember reading somewhere somebody talking about just not having the whole family over or, yes. or having them come in small groups. Small groups, or so. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, those are, those are great ideas, you know, to, just to try to limit that stimulation, that overstimulation. You know, even if you can somehow have a quiet room, you know, maybe people at different times go in there to, to speak to the person with the disease. Um, you just want to try to lower their stress mm -hmm. um, because I promise it will lower your stress as well. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, and we also just want to think about keeping the person with the disease on a familiar routine. You know, if if they eat lunch every day at 12, then you don't want to have your dinner at 2. You know, you want to try to keep that schedule for them. Um, you know, and, and, and make sure that other family members or people coming in know that, you know, mom is having some trouble with, with her word finding. You know, it might take her longer to, you know, answer you know, she might not think of the word. Always want these folks to feel a, a, a sense of self throughout the disease. It's important that we don't just go, oh, mom has Alzheimer's. She can't help us anymore. Put her in a corner. Right. Because they still, they still want to feel connected. You know, on some level, mom probably knows she always makes the mashed potatoes. You know, so those types of things. Um and, and again, just, just involve her or him, you know, as much as you can. Maybe, maybe they can put the napkins on the tea or on the table. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you said it earlier, but I think that point of lowering expectations that, yes. that this isn't going to be 
the way we did it. We've we've done it this way for twenty years, and and uh, the kids sang, and no, that's right. That's overload for most of us anyway. But it's it is it, it, it is definitely overload for somebody who's not processing things. Exactly. So you have to take the perspective of the person with the disease. It's very different than what my or your perspective would be. The person with the disease, they can't change. You know, they've lost the ability to problem solve, to, to, to sequence, to even speak sometimes. Um, so it's on us as caregivers to, to change our interaction. That was Teresa Morris from the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association speaking with Eric Douglas about adjusting holiday celebrations to include family with dementia. Lung cancer and smoking rates in the state lag behind the rest of the country and aren't showing any signs of improvement, according to a new report. Emily Rice has more. The American Lung Association's 2023 State of Lung Cancer Report ranked West Virginia as 47th out of 48 states included in the report for new lung cancer cases. Amy Van Cleve is the advocacy director for the American Lung Association in West Virginia. Unfortunately, West Virginia um, ranks second highest in the nation for new lung cancer cases and the worst in the nation for adults who currently smoke. So there's so much more work that is needed to reduce the burden of lung cancer, particularly in West Virginia. According to the report, West Virginians aren't surviving lung cancer either. Bob Heron is a thoracic surgeon and the director of lung cancer screening at WVU Medicine Wheeling Hospital in Wheeling, West Virginia. These numbers just tell us, you know, we're although we're making, you know, slow, steady strides of progress, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, we are at the bottom of the lists of, of, of uh, a lot of the major categories, such as the uh, new lung cancer cases. I believe we were 47th out of 51. Um, and we also ranked 37th out of 42 in lung cancer survival at 22.4%. The national survival rate is 26%. While rates of smoking in West Virginia are alarming, Van Cleve said there are other contributing factors to West Virginia's rates of lung cancer. The bottom line is, if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. So while smoking is the leading risk factor for lung cancer, there are so many other things that contribute to that as well including environmental air quality, including exposure to radon, and even your genetics. Radon is a naturally occurring, colorless, odorless, tasteless gas. Van Cleve said homeowners should keep radon detectors up to date to avoid exposure. West Virginia ranked 31 out of 51 states and Puerto Rico surveyed in radon exposure. If you're breathing things in the air that your body is not meant to breathe, that has detrimental impacts on on your body, which is why we spend so much time at the Lung Association looking at all of the different risk factors um, related to lung cancer. Van Cleve and Heron encouraged people who might be at high risk to take a survey at savedbythescan.org. It helps determine eligibility for a new kind of low-dose CT scan to check for lung cancer. You know, I would implore you know, people who fit that bill to ask their primary care physician about it and, and, and to get the ball rolling to get a to get a low dose CT to evaluate for a lung nodule or a potential lung cancer that could be potentially, you know, discovered in the earlier stages as opposed to the to the later stages, which, uh, as everybody knows, an early stage cancer is so much more uh, feasible and, and easier to cure than a, than a latter stage. 
According to Van Cleve, a long-term solution to the lung cancer and smoking problem could be brought about by legislative action from state lawmakers. That is why the Lung Association calls on state legislators to increase funding for tobacco control and cessation efforts, which have been dramatically underfunded year after year to the cost of countless lives. While West Virginia has shown improvement over the past five years in new cases, survival, and early diagnosis, experts say there is still plenty of work to do. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. West Virginia expects to receive about $1 billion of opioid settlement money. Leaders of one recovery organization hope to use some of that money to help their rural community recover from the addiction crisis. Brianna Heaney has the story. For Kimberly Holstein, the morning starts off by comparing two charts turned in by first responders. So from this, we have to always cross-examine with different things, so we get two different reports. So where that was unconscious, then we'll go to a Narcan use report, and this comes from our EMS um, squads. So if the person was given Narcan on that call... Holstein is the lead for the Quick Response Team, or QRT, an organization with Boone County Health that follows up with people who are struggling with addiction in the community. Sometimes they will get recommendations from police officers or community members who saw signs like nodding off, or they seem to have stopped taking care of themselves, and it could be because of drugs. Then the peer support team comes in, and they have a morning meeting where Holstein tells them where and who they need to go check on. I feel like we're kind of like a middleman. We, we exist to help connect people to the type of treatment that they need. That's Barry Stowers. He is one of the team members who goes out into the field. He and the five-person team travel around the county handing out food, Narcan, hygiene supplies, and they talk to people. He's from Boone County and is in recovery himself. All things he says help him relate to the people he talks to every day. If they say that they're fine with us coming back, um, we kind of put them in the driver's seat. So. We don't force them to do anything that they don't want to do, but we let them know there's options. Today, they are going to visit a man who overdosed the night before and received Narcan. The last conversation I had with him on the phone was, go ahead and take a shower and start getting ready because we're going to figure out a bed no matter what. The team heads out to talk to him. Holstein then heads to county court. She works closely with the court, advocating for and weighing in on court decisions for people QRT is trying to help. Here in Boone County, between Magistrate Moore and Magistrate Burnside, has allowed us to send 59 people to treatment through through their court. Holstein is referring to Magistrate Danny Moore, and this morning she has a meeting with Moore. He says working with QRT has given him more options for rehabilitation for some of the people he sees in his courts. And allowing them to step in and offer help has made a tremendous turnaround. And as she said earlier, that's the reason why you see some of the numbers going down in this county. In today's meeting, they figured out a plan for one of the people in the court system who is in recovery to have charges dropped if she graduates from the rehab. And he told her that if she graduated with no issues, that he would consider um, wiping that out because it was trespassing. Holstein then heads up to the sheriff's office for a meeting. 
He asked her to check on a woman in the community they saw when responding to a call at a house down the street. He said the woman looked like she may be in crisis, so Holstein headed down there. The woman doesn't answer, so they leave a note on her door handle. If she needs anything, she can call them. This effort put on by QRT is entirely grant-funded, but Holstein wants to be able to do more to help keep people off of drugs and help prevent drug use in the area through education, but needs more money to do it. One option is the billion-dollar opioid settlement money coming into the state. Boone County expects 2 to $3 million, according to the West Virginia First Settlement documents. I hate how this money came about and that so many people lost their lives um, for this money to be available. But on the other hand, I have to look at how many lives can change because of this. Holstein says the next step for QRT is to focus on more assistance for those coming out of rehab, strengthening programs that connect them to housing and jobs and even access to mental health care. That court case is over, what options do we have? And right now our county has none. She says she also wants to get into the schools to have a program to teach about navigating addiction in their community. Many families in Boone County have been affected by the opioid epidemic. Holstein says it's not uncommon for a child to be living in a home with a family member who is struggling with addiction. These kids have went, they have PTSD. Like they went through addiction with their family, sometimes multiple generations of addiction. They have experienced the worst of the worst. The West Virginia First Foundation, which is responsible for distributing the money from the opioid settlement, had its first meeting November 6. How much and where the money will go is still being decided. On the drive back to the office, a little red Volkswagen bug stopped in the middle of the street, and Holstein stopped too. Out came a tall young man, arms opened in an embrace. Hunter Gillipsy was one of the people QRT helped to recover. Both of his parents were addicted to opioids. Now, he's a year sober. Holstein says he is one of QRT's success stories. People like him are why she works so hard every day to expand the quick response team. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Boone County. HIV is on the rise in Monongalia County, as a group of WVU medical students learned recently on a Zoom call with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Emily Rice has more. According to the CDC, 210 new HIV infections occurred in West Virginia in 2022, the most recent federal data. AIDSVU is an interactive online mapping tool that visualizes the impact of the HIV epidemic on communities across the country. According to AIDSVU, in 2021, there were 2,196 people living with HIV in West Virginia. In 2021, 149 people were newly diagnosed with HIV. Dr. Anthony Fauci and Professor Steph Schuster visited West Virginia University virtually in a conversation on the history of LGBTQ plus healthcare in the United States. The conversation was facilitated by Ellen Rodriguez, the director of WVU's LGBTQ Center. While Fauci is known nationally for his work during the COVID-19 pandemic, he spent 40 years on the forefront of HIV and AIDS research and treatment. 
many of us uh, across the country uh, think of HIV AIDS as a disease that is manageable and perhaps in our rearview mirror, right? Uh, but we have, unfortunately, reliable data showing that right here in Morgantown, West Virginia, the home of our university, uh, we've had and we have now a substantial uptick of HIV-AIDS. Fauci responded that an uptick in HIV cases surprises and dismays him. The fact that you have an increase probably reflects two things. It's the lack of PrEP accessibility for those who are susceptible and a lack of accessibility to treatment for those who are already infected. Dr. Judith Feinberg is a professor of behavioral medicine and psychiatry and professor of medicine and infectious diseases and the vice chair of medicine for research at WVU. She said there has been a recent outbreak or cluster of HIV and AIDS in Morgantown. The one in Mon County, there were a couple of recent outbreaks, but the one in Mon County involves 10 men who have sex with men and they've been identified and offered care. And I believe the majority are being cared for actually at our what we what is uh, called the positive health clinic here. Feinberg said that with modern preventative medication accessible and information available, cases of HIV and AIDS should be falling, not rising. I believe for 2021, which is the last year we have full reporting on, it's something like 139. And it's been running about double ever since 2017. And that's really because that's the point at which HIV entered the community of people who inject drugs. Dr. Feinberg said there are two major behavioral risks associated with HIV. Injecting drugs is is re- really recently has overtaken men who have sex with men as the primary behavior behavioral risk for HIV. How can we do better with this? Well, first of all, we need a public we need the public to understand that this is happening. Fauci agreed with Feinberg's conclusion about the reason for an uptick in cases in West Virginia. Drug addiction, as we all know, is a disease uh, and, and not a crime. And when when you're trying to prevent someone from getting infected from injection drug use, that's a very difficult problem unless you get sterile needles a needle exchange. But for sexual transmission, we should be looking in the community about why is there the lack of the access to what we know is a highly effective prevention. That prevention is available as a pill to be taken frequently or a shot taken on a less frequent basis. That is entirely preventable. We now have pre-exposure prophylaxis that's either in an oral form with a drug that you could take every day or in association with your sexual contact, or now most recently, highly, highly effective, injectable, long-acting every couple of months pre-exposure prophylaxis, that the, the efficacy of that in preventing infection, if utilized properly, is 90 plus percent, 98 percent, sometimes close to 100 percent. With preventative medication available, experts think it is a lack of public perception of HIV and AIDS as a threat that leads to an uptick in infections. But changing public perception has been really hard. And I think, as I said, I think what happened is that this entered the public knowledge and the public imagination decades ago in this more limited context of, you know, men who have sex with men. So I think, you know, education and, uh, and awareness 
is really key. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Chris Schultz.